Well, hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer, of course, and I talk to Australia's most controversial economist, Professor Steve Keane. Some people call him Dr. Doom. He predicted a 40% fall in house prices after the GFC and continues to warn that our housing debt will bring us undone. But who is the guy behind the controversy? We find out. And then we talk to government MP Tim Wilson, who thinks the coalition needs to sort out the growing battle between young people and baby boomers over property and taxes. He has a new book out called The New Social Contract, Renewing the Liberal Vision for Australia. My next guest became infamous after the GFC, predicting a 40% fall in house prices and the infamy increased after losing a bet on house prices that made him walk from Canberra to Mount Kosciuszko with a t-shirt that read, I was hopelessly wrong on house prices, and so on. That was his infamy, but before that, he was made famous actually predicting the GFC better than any other economist in the world. His name is Professor Steve Keane, and while optimists and many conventional economists might criticise him, he has a big band of local and international followers who thinks... He's a genius. So let's get to know the real Steve Keane. Steve, thanks for coming on the program. Always with you, mate. No problem at all. Okay, buddy. All right, now let's, let's, let's start with the good part of the story first, and that has to be the Paul Revere Award that you won, where you beat the famous American economist Nouriel Roubini as the best predictor of the GFC. So tell us about the award and the win. Okay, well, that was set up by the Real World Economic Review, which is a non-mainstream economics journal that was established uh, around about 2000 after what was called the uh, uh, anti-autistic economics movement started in France. So there's about one in six economists are critics of the mainstream and uh, more than that proportion of students are. And uh, the mainstream, you know, everything's going to be hunky-dory, nothing can ever go wrong, capitalism always reaches equilibrium, if there's a problem it's the government's fault, that sort of stuff, that's the mainstream. And uh, so, so the rebels have been around for about six or seven years before the crisis hit. And then when it hit, they decided to, to create a satire of the uh, Nobel Prize in economics. And they first, the first suggestion of the, the guy who ran the Air Journal was to call it the ignoble uh, award, yeah. but there actually is an Ig Nobel Prize, so they, that couldn't be used. And, um, and I, I finally, they then said the Dynamite Award, and that was also blocked because of the Nobel, in fact, that's how the, the real Nobel made his money, by inventing Dynamite. Yeah. So they, they were having a discussion, I was on the discussion, I said, why not call it the Revere Award? Uh, you know, people warning the British are coming, the British are coming, here we have, you know, the crisis is coming, the crisis is coming. So that name was accepted and then they put a poll out where every anybody who was uh, subscribed to the journal, it's free, um, could put up a vote for up to three individuals. I was one of the three nominated pretty early, so I, I pulled out and sat back. I expected Rubini to win. Uh, part mm-hmm. of because, because he was really well known by the mainstream uh, yeah, media yeah. as well, wasn't CNBC in particular, yeah. Yeah, and also Dean Baker. I mean, Dean, uh, and both people have got great respect for, by the way. Mm. Um, and uh, so I expected them to win. I just sat back and waited. The numbers came in, and, and much to my surprise, uh, I got twice as many votes as Rubini. Yep. So um, the people who know non-orthodox economics, which were generally the ones who will look at that journal, uh, selected me ahead of Rubini, probably mainly because I do more mathematical modelling and, and more um, developing alternative economics than Rubini does. 
Yeah, and I should also throw in that other people who got reasonable votes include some of the most famous economists of all time, Joseph Stiglitz, Robert Schiller, Paul Krugman, uh, not really an economist, but a well-known investor, George Soros. Um, mm-hmm. Some big names there that were on the list. And so it's, it's, a, it's at least a recognition that non-mainstream economists and enthusiasts in that area certainly rated your uh, predictions around the GFC uh, very highly. And I must admit, uh, before the GFC, I, I published a number of your um, uh, views on where we were heading. Uh, and not necessarily because I agree with you, but as you know, I always run both sides of the argument because, you know, both sides of the argument is never, ever always right. Yeah. And um, look, the, the, the real thing, by the way, about this is not that, wow, I'm a genius, I predicted the global financial crisis. It's just how bad mainstream economics has to be not to see it coming in the first place. You had to be reeling really interesting blinkers not to see the signs of a financial crisis. And the main thing which I was focusing upon, of course, as you know, is the level of private debt. Mm. And if you look at the level of private debt, it's been rising compared to GDP, rising exponentially um, in America since the 50s, in Australia since the late 60s. And any ratio rising exponentially has to stop. My basic prediction was when the level of private debt to GDP stops growing, then we'll have a financial crisis. And that's exactly what happened. Okay. So let me play the the or ask the questions that my listeners might be wanting me to ask, um, mm. and, and, and they would be, all right, you got the uh, GFC right. Um, what happened to your prediction around a 40% fall in house prices um, and, uh, you know, after the GFC, Steve? What explains why that prediction didn't work out? Okay. Well, first of all, I've learned not to take bets uh, <laughs> right. uh, uh, like that uh, without putting the person putting the bet forward through the griller, first of all. Mm. And I've actually I've declined a bet recently with uh, the, with a nephew of uh, William Nordhaus, Ted Nordhaus, about uh, limits to growth. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, what happened was I said, look, uh, is this is going to be price, house prices will fall as they have in, in Japan and America after the crisis. Uh, but the very, within the day, the, the, about a week after I made that prediction, I'm, I actually was first asked that question by Terry O'Brien, Kerry O'Brien on the 7.30 report. That's where I gave the answer. Mm. And the next day he interviewed Kevin Rudd, grilled him like crazy about my views. And the week later, Rudd launched uh, and had the stimulus package and I was in favour of things like the, mm. you know, uh, the $1,000 to everybody with a pulse in the country and and so on, even, even, the, 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 even the insulation scheme and the the school building because you needed to inject money into the economy quickly and at work we didn't have a recession. But they also doubled and trebled the first home buyers grant, which Mm. I nicknamed the first home vendors grant. Mm. Um, And that that gave people, like literally in in rural Victoria, a non-main metropolitan Melbourne, it gave people $34,000 to go and buy a house. Okay. Yeah. Well, that started the bubble again. And then when the bubble ran out in 2010, which happened to be when I did the walk, um, and you started to see a fall in house prices, the reserve, which had been putting up interest rates to fight inflation that never happened, mm. reversed direction and started cutting rates quite dramatically. And over time, you had a second bubble with, with um, investors pouring into the market. But throughout it, my comment was, you're only going to get higher house prices if you're willing to take on higher household debt. And Australia now has the second highest level of household debt on the planet, the only country being higher 
is Switzerland. The only country ever to be higher is Denmark. So what Australia's done is get it massively indebted because what drives up, what causes rising house prices is rising levels of new mortgage debt. Mm. So we, 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 we managed to avoid what I said was the consequence because we, Australia, massively geared up on housing debt. And if you compare Australia's housing debt to America, um, when the GFC hit, it was roughly about the same, about 100% of GDP. They're now about 80, we're 120. So that's what went wrong. Australians continued gambling. Yeah, yeah. But also, Steve, over that period of time when you came on my Sky Business program <clears throat> and we monitored the fact that the 40% house price fall wasn't going to happen or wasn't happening, one of the things you, you did observe was exactly what you said then. The government has actually gone for very strong fiscal policy. And in actual fact, you were recommending that they do that. So in a sense, was. You, were, you were actually advocating things that would make your argument less likely. But you also used to recommend, because I think I was pretty well on my own except for you and a couple of other economists, where I was bagging the Reserve Bank for raising interest rates or keeping them too high. And you also mm. supported that. In fact, I think John Houston also supported that the Reserve Bank was keeping interest rates too high. So in many ways, your own arguments were working against that prediction. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't doing it for a bet. This is the thing that really pissed me off about that particular bet and being, and why I'm very sceptical about getting involved in future ones because mm. I wasn't saying anything about – I wasn't gambling on house prices. I was saying running an economy by having inflating house prices is bad economic policy. Mm. It's going to get you with a heavily indebted society and if and when the shit hits the fan, you, your fan won't have any batteries. And that is what's happening right now. Of course, there's no way I predicted the uh, the coronavirus. Mm. But in the aftermath, what we're going to find, we don't have a manufacturing sector. Uh, we simply have overpriced housing and we don't have the capacity to to, man to, in to industrialise. Yeah. Economies that tried to keep house prices low yeah. and put the investment into factories that, that will do a damn sight better in the aftermath than we yeah. will. Yeah, okay. So, so whenever you and I had a, a friendly argument on TV, Part of my argument was because you know I am more influenced by mainstream economists, but I am actually prepared to be influenced by you, and I think you're you're on the money. <laughs> but the thing is that I always knew, maybe because I'm, I'm more a political animal than you, that governments would do their best to throw every policy possible to avoid a forty percent fall in house prices, and that's exactly what they did, and they're doing it now again. I guess mm. the, the, the question I have now is how long can they keep this up for? Because I always used to say to you, Steve, it's risky, big, fisc big budget deficits and cutting interest rates, prov but provided we get good economic growth out of it, we can, in a sense, pay for it for a, a bit longer. The question is are we going to get growth out of all the spending we're seeing right now? Well, see, the, 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 on this government spending, one thing and we might discuss what's called modern monetary theory, uh, at some point, because there is no limit to the amount of money the government can create by spending, and it does not indebt the private sector when the government does it. In fact, it gives the private sector money for normal commerce, so that's not the problem. To me, the problem was we are de-industrializing the country by pumping up asset prices, and you you know you can only do that for a while until you, you no longer have the productive facilities to support those asset prices. And uh, Australia ranks uh, ranks last in the OECD on industrial complexity. Mm. And it ranks about the level of countries like Senegal and the Seychelles for the complexity of its manufacturing uh, system. 
And now we find ourselves in a world where we can't import stuff anymore. And we, the stuff we want to export, particularly coal, is likely to be completely tanked in the next five years. So we're going to find ourselves having to build an industrial sector. And what have we got? Real estate agents. Um, you know, mm. um, so it, it is a very bad way to manage an economy, and that's always been my perspective. Okay, I, I've often also said to you, Steve, we, we've had a, a history of muddling through what look like really bad crises. Could we muddle through this one? No, I don't think we can muddle through. Um, the coronavirus is something which, if you, if you look back and see when was the first serious warning about this given, it was 1994 by a woman called Laurie Garrett, who was then the New York Times medical correspondent. She wrote a brilliant book, took a sabbatical leave effectively, called, uh, to write it called The Coming Plague. And I read that in 1995. And she argued that it was basically probably going to be the flu virus that mutated, but she said at some stage you're going to get a mutation in a virus which both increases transmissibility and increases potency. And that's been known for some substantial time. Now, because it's happened uh, in the aftermath, we've now got two parts of the planet, or you know, scramble, some parts, which, including China, where the virus first originated, Thailand, most of Southeast Asia, which are virus-free. And then the rest of the world, which has got a, you know, the virus is going to continue outbreaking all the time. Um, those two, two groups are really not going to be in touch anymore. You won't have tourism between them. Uh, you're unlikely to have trade. So in that situation, autarky, capacity to produce what you need domestically, is what matters. Mm. Now, how many cars can Australia manufacture? Zero. Okay. How many power stations can it manufacture? Zero. Uh, where is its electronic capability? Fortunately, a country which you can still import and export to, China, because we let our our innovators in solar technology moved their technology to China. We didn't build it locally. So uh, muddling through is over. We now need to train engineers, uh, develop scientists, have the capacity to be an ecologically sustainable industrialised economy in the future. And that ain't going to be something we can do by, you know, the sort of garbage we teach at universities yeah. these days. And, and I've got to say, Steve, you, know, you brought China up and I, and I really wish we weren't castigating China at the right uh, at the, the current time because I think we mm. need them like never before. Yeah. Though I think they deserve castigation, but I would, for political purposes and economic purposes, you know, give, you know, give them a wide berth at, at you know at, at this point in time. But China will be uh, a source of imports. You, you said it's it's going to be difficult to get imports, but a hell of a lot of imports we can get from China, and they do buy a lot of our exports. We are like when we when you and I were young and teaching at the University of New South Wales together, mm. we were always talking about trade uh, deficits. We've got trade surpluses all the time now, Steve. Yeah, they won't last all that long, I think, because we um, we still can't produce the manufacturing goods. We've got to import those. But, yeah, China will still be a source of us having ex, you know, our, our iron ore exports. But coal exports, I think we're going to find China is one of the first countries to start drastically reducing its coal. So there goes coal. Mm. Uh, education. Um, we've degraded the university sector so badly. You, you and I knew what it was like in the 70s and also as students and in the 80s as teachers, uh, the, the level of bureaucracy and you know, pretend degrees and students thinking they've bought their education because they've paid for it, not because they've earned it, um, 
it, it's we just don't have a quality education system anymore. So um, I, I think it's the real thing I'm worried about is the lack of manufacturing capability and the lack of engineering now in the country. Mm. And we've let that run down because the, you know, the Reserve Bank in particular and the Treasury, of course, are dominated by comparative advantage views. Uh, let's stick to our comparative advantage. The theory has always been nonsense. Uh, uh, but now we're left with the consequences. When you do have a complete autarky situation being pushed on you, if you don't manufacture and we don't, then you're in trouble. So... If we if we think about why mainstream economists really get your dander up, ex- mm-hmm. explain what is wrong with mainstream economics <laughs> in a nutshell, so normal people can appreciate it, and then okay. what is the alternative? Okay, mainstream economics is a series of convenient myths. If I wanted to find a, an intellectual uh, equivalent to mainstream economics, it would be the astronomy before Copernicus, which is called Ptolemaic astronomy after, after Ptolemy. He worked out a mathematical model of how the, how the solar system and the universe could work with Earth was at the centre and all the planets and stars and the sun and moon orbited around us. Uh, and to explain the fact that this planets apparently occasionally reverse direction, and the word planets in Greek means wanderer, is because they, they, they weren't just circling around us on spheres, they are on spheres on the spheres, and the sphere on the sphere would appear to reverse direction. Mm. And that was a mathematically ele- elegant... I did ask for a simple explanation, Steve. This is getting more it's, an, it's, it's an analogy. They had a, a, simple, a complicated mathematical model of the universe which worked to predict its future and was completely wrong. wrong. Now, that's mainstream economics. For example, supply and demand. They have this, you know, the intersecting lines of rising supply costs, falling demand price. X marks the spot where the two work. When you go and ask actual firms what do their supply curves look like, they're downward sloping. Yes. You don't have the... Like, okay, like a demand the, curve. Yeah, the, so the, supply, the demand curve, for, the supply curve so-called for most companies is a horizontal line or falling line because the more they produce, the less it costs for each additional unit. Um, one of the foundations of the theory which gives you a rising supply curve is, is empirically false. And there are about, about 30 or 40 surveys that have been done of this. None of them have turned up in the textbook. So what you the, the rising supply curve, that's when you're part one of the theory, mm. is empirically false. Now, if you start a theory with, with, an, with, a, with an assumption that I can prove is wrong, you've got a bad theory. Mm. And that's the very first assumption. Uh, so every element in the theory has been shown to be false, empirically false, and or mathematically false, but and they st- still continue going on. Okay. And, but, Steve, wouldn't your critics say, but hang on, you know, we've gone through a period of very low um, unemployment, low inflation, high levels of uh, income per head. Um, if we're wrong, it's still producing pretty good outcomes. What, what, what would an alternative... Apart from, and I, and I don't think necessarily the, the theory you support would necessarily uh, produce manufacturing sectors. Other other factors would explain that, wouldn't they? Well, let's 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 go back to the you know uh, using empirical reality to contradict theory. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Um, if you say, yeah, look, okay, you might be right. The theory is wrong, but look how well the real world's worked. Well, if your theory doesn't explain the real world, how can you use the real world to defend your theory? And I had, I had one. I've had a lot of personal interactions with economists over this. There's one um, I've forgotten. Deirdre um, 
can't think of Deirdre's last name now, mm. but she's a fairly prominent, Deirdre McCloskey, fairly right. prominent non-mainstream economists. And I was pointing out to her that the theory, the other part of the, you know, you get the upward sloping supply curve and the downward sloping demand curve. That has been shown to be mathematically impossible. You can't get a downward sloping market demand curve by summing up individuals who have downward sloping individual demand curves. Mm. It's a mathematical theorem. And I pointed out that that was false. And she said, oh, look, Steve, but you trying to tell me that demand curves in the real world slope up? And I, I, was, I should have given her a more brutal answer than I did. But the basic thing is, look, if the real world uh, has a phenomenon your theory can't explain, your theory is still wrong. And they can't explain what she was using in the real world to defend her theory. So we have an invalid theory and we're trying to explain the real world with it. It's sheer luck that the real world workouts so what do you out replace to be okay it sometimes. With, Steve? What do you replace it with? Very simply, system dynamics. Okay, a whole area of, 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 of analysis called system dynamics, which was developed by engineers in the 1950s to explain fluctuations in manufacturing output of factories. There's a guy called Jay Forrester, J-A-Y, first name, and Forrester with a double R, mm. uh, who invented that in the 1950s. And, it, and it's now there's a whole range of professionals who use that, particularly in management and engineering. Uh, if you have any, any vehicle you've travelled in, uh, it has been built since 2010, has been first of all designed in mathematical software, most likely a program called Simulink, which I'm sure engineers here are listening would know about. Um, management people use package like Vensim. I've invented one for the economics called Minsky. Um, so the, you basically assist, you, you, you build a model of your, whatever the system might be based on its structure. Now I've built I've, the model I built of Minsky's financial instability hypothesis. You remember I did that back at uni when you and I were. Um, You've always been a big at, Minsky um, fan, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I showed you can derive Minsky's model simply by taking three incontrovertible macroeconomic definitions the employment rate, which is how many people have a job divided by population, the wage, wage share of GDP, which is wages divided by GDP, and the debt ratio, which is private debt divided by GDP. Take those three differentiate them with respect to time, which is where the system dynamics bit comes in, put in the simplest possible assumptions about behaviour of, of workers wanting wage rises with higher employment and capitalists investing more with higher uh, levels of profit and then banks charging interest, I generate Minsky's financial instability hypothesis, which predicts a period of a, before a crisis occurs, a period of diminishing cycles, which economists saw and they called it the great moderation and then a crisis afterwards. So you can actually derive most of your economics by simply taking the structure of the economy uh, and putting it into a dynamic framework, which is what systems dynamics is. Yeah, so the, the bottom line is most normal people listening to this say they want their economists to do what the Reserve Bank allegedly is doing, you know, uh, control uh, the interest rate level to try and get uh, an acceptable level of inflation, an acceptable level of employment growth, an acceptable level of economic growth. Would your model just do it better? Would it do well, it better? Says, one, one, one thing it would do is say you've got to include the level of private debt in your analysis. If you look at the RBA, and of course I know their models pretty well, um, they don't have the level of private debt in their models mm. and they don't have the rate of change of private debt, which is credit. So they're leaving out credit demand. And the reason they leave it out is they 
their models assume that banks are just what they call intermediaries. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a borrower, you're a saver. Um, the bank arranges you to make me a loan and they charge a fee to make a profit. So you, you don't, they don't originate the loan, you do. Okay, that's their model. That's bullshit. Uh, we've been saying it's bullshit for 50 years. I'm happy to have a child, a child, child-rated show. No, no, stop. But, uh, but, okay. but children swear worse than that. I've been told. Okay, <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. It's bullshit, and uh, I've been part of a group of non-orthodox economists which have been saying that for over 50 years. Uh, in 2014, the Bank of England came out and said it's bullshit in a paper called "Money Creation in the Modern Economy," saying banks are not intermediaries; banks originate. And when you include that, you then see that credit, which is the annual change in debt, um, is part of economic demand. And if you leave it out of your models, you're not going to see a crisis coming. So I would simply say, stop using equilibrium models, throw them out in the garbage bin. They belong in the 19th century. And that's the sort of model the RBA still uses. And include credit. Have credit as an indicator and don't let it get out of control and don't let the private debt level exceed something of the order of 70% of GDP. It's currently about three times that in Australia. So it, I'd be adding an extra indicator to what they're doing. And that's the level of private debt. Is there an economy in the world that actually is looking at economics the way you do? No, uh, because all the economists they hire are trained by mainstream uh, universities. Mm. So, I mean, I bet the Bank of England is starting to hire graduates from my my old university now. Um, Kingston? And they've, 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 that's Kingston, yeah. Got a couple of my graduates there. And um, and they have a research centre which was founded by Andy Haldane, who was... was almost became uh, head of the Bank of England. He missed out, unfortunately. Mm. Andy is a, in, an innovative thinker and he wants non-orthodox, including physicists, by the way, um, in, in the bank. So they're producing interesting research. The Bundesbank, uh, the Bank of Norway, those are some of the banks that have, uh, are more out there in terms of the research they're doing. Do, but do you- overall, the policy is still set by mainstream economists. Steve, um, so you're no longer at the uh, Kingston University. You're living in Thailand. How do you – what's the – if you had to put a number on your followers and you have a a website and a a connection with your followers, what what, what numbers follow you nowadays? Oh, well, the main thing I've got is a website called Patreon, which is set up by art and a bunch of artists to, so that people who support an artist can give them direct funding. And I uh, went on to that about four years ago. And so on Patreon, I've got about uh, about 1,500 supporters mm. and they give me anywhere between $1 a month and $1,000 a month. And I'm getting earning about, in the US dollar terms, about $8,500 a month from that. Yeah. So that's my direct financial supporters. Most of my stuff on Patreon, by the way, is free access. So I asked my patrons whether they wanted to be closed or open. They said, no, we'll keep it open. We're willing to subsidise you getting non-orthodox thought out there. So you can go and read my stuff without having to give me any financial support. Yeah. And then on Twitter, about 75,000 followers. So that's those are the two main social media that I use. Yeah. And books, How many? Like, what's the latest book you've got out there? Well, the most one is called Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis? And mm. I wrote that back in 2017. Mm. Um, debunking economics is the main one, mm. and I'm a, starting work on a third book called uh, Economics Matters Because, which is a book which has been commissioned by Polity Press, the same ones who published uh, Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis, and that's to t- say what economics should be, mm. and it's written for the level for school students. And then 
I'm going to be doing a third edition of Debunking Economics, which will be the third and final. Mm. And the next one after that, I'm going to call uh, <coughs> something in the principles of political economy and ecology. And that'll be my integrated economic and ecological analysis, which I hope I'll start by the end of next year. Mm. Do you think you'll spend the rest of your life in Thailand? Because you've been a, a you've been a rolling stone. You know, you started off in Sydney. You went to working at University of South Wales. You rolled over to Western Sydney until they got rid of their economics department. You then mm. rolled to London. <clears throat> spent a time in Amsterdam, and now you're in Thailand. You you are a, an unusual economist, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I live the instability the rest of them assume doesn't exist. Um, yeah, I mean, the tri trip to this was a really panic one. I mean, you, you and I, when I saw you back in Sydney and recorded our last interview, uh, that was two days before I left the country, I think. Yeah. And I, I, I was looking at the stats and I was thinking Amsterdam was going to be it. Mm. And I was puzzled. There were zero cases in Amsterdam. Then one day I woke up, it was one case in the morning, two and I went to bed, six in the next morning, and boom, it took off exponentially. And I got back there and looked at the numbers and thought, holy shit, this place is exploding with the number of cases. I have no intention of catching this disease. And partly my ecological research is the major reason why. Mm. My girlfriend was Thai, so I had Australia, uh, Britain, uh, Netherlands and Thailand, I could have lived this crisis out and I said, let's get the hell to Thailand. A week later, we took off. We arrived the day before they started shutting the border to, to tourists and I'm now endeavouring to stay here permanently. Mm. Um, it, the, the big thing is the next major um, shift in uh, ecology is likely to be uh, the development of what they call wet bulb temperatures exceeding 35 degrees, which will make part of this country unlivable. So uh, I, I hope... I might be forced to be a refugee internally again in Thailand, but for the meantime, I'm staying where the virus is not, mm. and that's Thailand. And why has Thailand done so well compared to other countries? Uh, I think, for, of course, it first of all had experience with SARS. Mm. So it, 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 and it, it didn't do something stupid uh, like Australia did and like America certainly did of shutting down their pandemic uh, facilities before the crisis hit. They had them ready ready to roll. So they already had a pandemic plan before the pandemic started. Uh, they divided the country into at least 60 of its regions. It's, it's a sort of 60 provinces roughly in, with a population of 60 million. And then inside large provinces, they regionalised that as well. So you couldn't move from one spot to another. And if therefore the virus was located, there'd be parts where the virus wasn't, it stayed not there. Um, then they, everybody wears masks and the, the country can produce masks. It has manufacturing capability mm. and they were, the government uh, required manufacturers to sell masks at a price of 10 baht for a pack of four, including a 20% profit margin for the manufacturer. 10 baht is 40 cents. So for 10 cents each, we were buying in 95 masks and my girlfriend and I probably have a collection of 200 masks now. Um, so there's the capability not to transmit the virus that way. Contract, con contact tracing was well established. They already had the facilities for that and the staff. Um, and sanitising uh, is, is universal. So they did, did the whole pattern. It wasn't just one thing, but it's the entire pattern that worked. I, I thought initially it was also temperature. It does appear the virus lasts less time out of the body at temperatures above 35 degrees. And when we arrived here, it was 37 mm. uh, maximum. Of course, that's in the shade. So in, on, the, on the pavement, you're looking at temperatures of 50 and 60. 
um, which was enough to kill the virus. So I think a whole range of factors went together. Um, they're also very strict on quarantine. They had two quarantine breaches uh, about involving diplomats and military uh, about three weeks ago. And even those people, when they went out, they were wearing masks and there were no transmissions from those two quarantine breaches. And now they're absolutely rigorous about it. So whole combination of things, but they showed you can't eliminate the virus from a land-based country with land borders uh, of 60 million people. They've done it. Yep, and that was Steve Keen. Uh, now, this is the time where we would do a little bit of an ad. And this week we thought we'd promote the Switzer Report. The Switzer Report is designed to actually give you insights into some fantastic uh, tips on great stocks. We often use that then for the Switzer TV investing program that goes out on Monday nights on YouTube. And we have some fantastic tips in that particular show. 16 stocks that have re possible returns over 20% if the reporting season conforms with what the analysts expect. So check both those out, the Switzer Report, that's switzerreport.com.au, and go to Switzer Financial Group YouTube to get our TV show, which comes out every Monday night. Well, joining me now is an MP by the name of Tim Wilson, pretty famous MP as well, and you'll find out why in a moment. But he's got a new book out called The New Social Contract. But uh, apart from talking about the book, I want to get to know Tim Wilson and find out how he scaled the, the ladder of the Liberal Party. A lot of people would like to be a politician one day, and let's find out the way Tim did it. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, Tim, you were kind of famous before you were an MP, weren't you? I guess you won't say you were famous, but at least you were well known. What positions did you hold before you decided to put your hand up to become an MP? Well, before I was an MP, I was Australia's Human Rights Commissioner for a couple of years, mm. uh, which obviously by its nature attracts controversy and attention, and uh, I guaranteed that. Uh, prior to that, I worked for the Institute of Public Affairs in um, space around trade and uh, intellectual property and climate change policy. I have this habit of being involved in controversial debates uh, around the country as they happen, but that's kind of reflective of my nature, which is um, I don't mind going ahead of the curve sometimes, throwing a few punches and getting uh, into debates when it's hard. A lot of people avoid the hard debates. I sort of look at them and run as fast as them as possible. Okay. So are you a great believer in that line from William Blake, without controversy, there's no progress? Oh, a bit, because in the end, you've got to speak truth to power. You've got to challenge the existing uh, order sometimes. And there's a reason why it's the elephant in the room or the untouchable issue. It's because there are a lot of people who have an interest in nothing changing, but of course, that often comes at the expense of those who would benefit, which is the many. When did you decide that you wanted to ultimately end up in politics? Well, I've been uh, interested in the political world for most of my adult life. I became involved with student politics at university, but I always took the view that it was best to have a successful, or hopefully a successful career, regardless of seeking to run for parliament. Um, one of the first things they do when you get elected as an MP is you get taken into the House of Representatives or the Senate, and they tell you how many people since Federation have had the privilege, and it's very small. It's less than 1,500 in the House for the entire uh, time of the parliament mm. uh, since Federation. 
So you've got to put it all in perspective. The chances of you being elected parliament are very slim. So if you, you know, set your career up for that objective, uh, you're more likely than not to be unsuccessful. Um, but of course, when it comes along, you grab at the opportunity. And uh, I ultimately made the decision when my predecessor and Rob announced he was retiring in, I think it was February 2016. And uh, I had to resign as human rights commissioner to run, and which is a big call in itself because it meant I was throwing away a very prestigious, very um, important role uh, for the chance to be the Liberal Party's candidate. I won just and then went on to uh, win the general election as well. Okay, so why did you want to become a politician? And when did you decide that you wanted to be a politician? Well, there's, there's no explicit time. It's more of a, a gestating of issues. But what happened uh, for me was while I was Human Rights Commissioner, you have the capacity to raise issues and bring them to the public square. And I had a long history experience doing that. But uh, you don't get the chance to actually affect change um, in the same way. You come to realise that uh, you can raise as many issues as you want if you're not in the room when the decision is being made, uh, you're a contributor, but you're not a decider. And I decided that uh, I needed to be in the room to have those conversations. And so it was more of a, an incubation rather than uh, you know, a formal decision. And then when the opportunity came up, uh, I grabbed it. And uh, you know, I guess I'd say the, the thesis just held true. I've discovered that if you're not in the room, you're not part of the conversation, not the full part of the conversation you like, you're certainly not a decider. And it's a critical part of our democratic process to be part of the final conversation. Yeah, I want to drag you back because you did say that you were involved in student politics. So yeah. you, mu you must have been a latent political animal even then, or were you just trying to have a whole lot of piss ups with university students? <laughs> uh, no, actually, if I go back to my student political days, uh, it, it wasn't. It was very much a focus on um, what we needed to do around service provision. There were some areas of um, uh, of services that the student union wasn't providing to certain students, and I simply stepped up and took responsibility and said, "I'm going to fix this," and did. Uh, and then basically built together a coalition of people who wanted to keep going in the same direction. So was there politics to it? Yes, but it wasn't the same degree of partisan politics. Uh, but you actually got a meaningful taste uh, of what it's like to run an administration. Yeah, I know, completely accept it's completely different to the Commonwealth. Hmm. But, you know, at the age of 22, you're running multi-million dollar budgets, understood the challenges of managing constituencies how to, and how to take um, an organisation forward. And in my two years, because I was president of the student union twice, um, you got to, we actually drove quite a lot of reform and it was satisfying to be able to translate ideas into pragmatic action mm. and outcomes. But when you won those two elections to be you know, president of the student union, it must have crossed your... I can't your... believe we were talking about this, but yes. <laughs> well, the thing is this, see Tim, I'm not here to entertain you, I'm here to entertain my, my <laughs> listeners and there could be I'm people... I'm quite happy to talk about it. <laughs> and there could be, but I'm saying, the thing is, you've achieved something, as you pointed out, what, 1,500 people and, and uh, the people what listen to this, they're going to go and read about all the, all the great things you've done as a, a, a young politician and you know, human rights commissioner, they can read about that. But I think people get fascinated with how people have become successful. and. 
you know, within your, your area of your, your desire and your goals, you, you're being successful. And people are, are, are intrigued about that, you know, because uh, it seems to me you're saying, oh, well, yeah, uh, I, I end up being the Human Rights Commission and then uh, I said, or someone came along for the Liberal Party and said, why don't you run for the, uh, for, for the seat of, well, what seat is it? It's, it's a Victorian Goldstein. seat. Goldstein. Goldstein. But, but I think, uh, can, can, I, can I give you an insight, I guess? Um, Please, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm chasing, insights. Yeah. No, no, no. So I appreciate that. It's just uh, trying to get to to the bottom of it, which is, um, you know, I I feel very uncomfortable with some of the things you've just said. But if it were to come down to anything is I've always taken the approach, I'm going to be myself. And I mean myself. And sometimes that's good. And sometimes that's not so good. Uh, But there's a I genuinely am only myself. And I always stand up for what I believe in, whether it's right or whether it is um, whether other people don't want to hear it, hmm. and um, and I say that because it's critically important because people get a flavour of who you are as a person. So when I was at the IPA in my um, role, I took controversial stance. Why? Because I believed in it. Uh, and sometimes people would challenge you and sort of you know put you back in your box or something, and realise that there's no backing down because I actually believe it because I'm saying it because I believe it. The same was also true with Human Rights Commissioner, uh, and so. If anything, you know, whatever anybody thinks, they, I think, would see that there's an authenticity uh, and an honesty, which is this is who I am, this is what I stand for, and this is why I want to be involved in public life. Mm. And um, there are so many people who try and say one thing and do another or try and pretend to other people that they can be many different things. You can't be. And so uh, that's, I guess, where um, moving between each of those roles, even back to student political days, it's kind of removed doubt for people because even if they disagree, they have some degree of respect at least for the position I'm taking and that they know that it comes from a sincere place. Mm. Um, and if you have that core belief, you can have two things which I think are really important in politics, which is courage and conviction. Because when I ran for pre-selection, which people outside the political world perhaps won't have much appreciation, is probably the most vulnerable stage you'll ever be in your political life. People assess different potential candidates to be members of parliament amongst your peers. And, uh, you know, you've got to persuade people that you're the best person uh, to take this monumental leap of faith on the privilege uh, to serve. And so I had lots of people who disagreed with me on things, but they liked that I was a fighter, that I wasn't going to back down and that I stood up for what I believed in because at least they then knew that they could trust you to stand up because there are plenty of times in politics where people uh, back off because they don't want to do damage to themselves or because they're afraid of the fight. Mm. My view is bring it on. Were you always going to be a liberal politician if you were going to be a politician? Oh, resolutely, yes, because uh, my my politics uh, is very much of uh, classical liberal political philosophy applied into practice. And while there are strains of liberalism which touch into different political parties. Uh, in the end, uh, I knew that that was where uh, my values rested. And there's a diversity of values and uh, opinions in the Liberal Party, but that's mine very much sit uh, within the home of it and do, uh, don't in others. And it's also the, the practical lived experience. The reason I became liberal in my outlook uh, was because I saw the human consequences of the 90s recession uh, and I don't mean just the dollar consequences, though obviously that was part of it, uh, but also the human impact of social dysfunction, family breakdown, 
etc etc and it gave you a perspective on um, what mattered why it mattered and particularly the importance of uh, uh, social and political freedom and economic freedom to enable prosperity mm. now I, I really read this to you because one of my producer is a delightful young person, uh, said, how can liberals shift to fulfil this move towards socialism? Now, she's, ah. she's taken this because the, the title of your book sounds very socialistic, The New Social Contract. So... Right, what? <laughs> okay. So reconcile both of those, Tim. I, I wouldn't have thought that you were identified with so socialism, but come on, you might surprise me. No, I'm not a socialist <laughs> one iota. In fact, the concept of a social contract is actually one that's deep in kind of liberal political philosophy. And it's this idea that there are unwritten um, rules about the consent for which govern those who govern over us uh, uh, govern with the consent of the public. And so it's what are the terms and the limitations. It's an amorphous concept, but it's had uh, traditions in people like John Locke and Thomas Hobbes, um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, and of course, Edmund Burke, uh, who was the most uh, probably famous um, advocate in, in, uh, in sort of the, the uh, English tradition, which is the idea of this government by consent, but the parameters, and that there's a constant conversation that sits between the people about the legitimacy and the terms of, uh, of a social contract between people. So it's not, it's not socialism, it's quite the reverse. It's, it's about th that concept of consent. Okay. Uh, and my, my point in, in the new social contract is to talk about well, what is the terms of really the Australian liberal social contract. Mm. And we had it uh, in the, uh, there's a concept of the social contract in the colonies. Um, David Kemp wrote about this in his book about Australian liberalism, or five books about Australian liberalism, about how uh, there was an understanding from the early colonies that the role of government was to protect people's freedom and their property. Uh, I argue that uh, Paul Kelly's analysis in his book, The End of Certainty, which is about um, the, uh, the period of the tumultuous 80s, which was the end of that kind of social contract that dominated a large part of the 20th century around uh, big, uh, strong government to enable prosperity for Australians. Um, and then also the Menzian idea of, uh, in the post-war period of the social contract being about people being able to buy their own homes and become a stake, have a stake in the country. And that when government was seeking to achieve that, it was seeking to achieve the ambitions of Australians mm. as well as Australia. And uh, that each generation needs to reassess that social contract and what's sustainable for society. Okay. So... That, the stuff you're talking about is really uh, important, uh, uh, let me be honest, highbrow stuff. And it's, yep. and it's great for political debaters and academics and lawyers yep. and all those sorts of people. But the reality is there's, there's no, no point doing this stuff unless we're able to disseminate this down to, to normal Australians to understand what you're trying trying to say, what you, you hope for the country. So in a nutshell, using less highbrow yep. language, what do you think that, <laughs> what, I'm, I'm, saying, I'm not saying a condescending way whatsoever, Tim. No, 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 no I agree, I agree. It's, so, so, you've, got to, you've got to be able to relate it. This is, yeah. the book is actually kind of like applied 
political philosophy. Yeah. Um, and so the point is you've got this amorphous concept, yeah. uh, this idea of this contract between government and people, but what does it mean practically yeah. for people? And my point in the book um, distilled is that we've got this new fraying of society or the, so the social contract. The fraying uh, and the divide is between generations. Um, and particularly the baby boomers and the millennials. Yep. And yes, there's a lot of people have written about this. Bernard Salt, for instance, writes about it just about every weekend in the Weekend Australian. Uh, but uh, my point is to put a political lens over it, which is we've never had a time where we've had so many older Australians and so many younger Australians. Yep. And they actually have diametrically opposed, particularly economic interests. Older Australians want house prices to be high because it's their basis of their financial security. Younger Australians want them to be low because the pathway for them to enter into the property market. Yep. Um, and it's not just about housing, but it pays out in, plays out in tax rates. Who's paying tax? Why they're paying tax? Mm. The incentives that operate in our society. And we have two big groups, one at the start, one at the end of their life, and then there's this dip in the middle. And so you need to reassess that whole concept of how you're gonna hold society together when they actually have diametrically opposed, or, you know, that's probably several sounds a bit extreme, but certainly differentially exposed um, interests. Mm. And um, it comes out most strongly in property prices because it's uh, for young people, it's the point when they buy their first home, it's the ambition or it's the realization of their ambition of what they want for their own security into the future. And at the same time, uh, it actually has impacts on how they see the world, their political objectives or how they see politics uh, and there are political consequences and socio-political consequences. Uh, and, but it also maintains the, it's the foundation of financial security for older mm. Australians. Tim, um, do, you, do you think that the media pours fire on this divide, this competition for assets, um, you know, underlining the fact that the baby boomers have done it so well um, compared to the millennial generation, you know, choosing to ignore some of the, the sufferings that baby boomers have went through, went through, like 80% home loan interest rates, you know, the high cost of imported goods yeah. and all that sort of stuff, and, uh, and they pour fuel on the fire. And of course, we're making it harder on younger generations because for God's sake, we're living too long and they can't get into our, into our houses. So, but do you think the media is actually pouring a, a little bit too much uh, fuel on the fire? Well, I think the problem is the media wants to have a fight. Mm. And of course, where you have this kind of fight, everybody buys into it. And my point is really to promote a sense of understanding about the competing objectives. And then if you overlay the hard numbers, uh, millennials have already demographically overtaken baby boomers in terms of their numbers. And so baby boomers have as much of an interest in having, shall we say, a smooth discussion uh, rather than simply trying to defend their interests because there'll be a point where they'll be completely outnumbered and then they'll, there'll be serious costs uh, associated with it. So the media absolutely want to have that fight. I think we need is a better understanding and empathy because some of the things you've outlined are right. Baby boomers did pay a lot higher interest rates but they paid it on prices which were a lot lower as a portion of their income. So when baby boomers were high, buying houses, 
they were only four times the uh, the weekly or the annual salary uh, that they earn. Mm. Today, it's um, nearing towards ten. Um, ten times the annual salary of a millennial. So there's a disparity that's being created and COVID-19 is only going to make it a lot worse. So it's actually bringing these issues forward. I wrote this book to kind of talk about what's going to happen over the next decade. Um, in practice, I think a lot of things, unfortunately, that I'm concerned about in a decade are really going to be amplified now. Okay, so... so I have the conversation. Okay, so, so what do you think is the new social contract going to be? So I think the new social contract ultimately has to come down to recognising that we have to have a fairer responsibility for people at all stages of their life to address those imbalances because uh, currently we basically tax income and of course that hits people between only a certain age group, principally 35 to about 55. Most of the public expenditure and certainly the areas of growth are all in the plus 65 group. Um, who also, and I'm not having a criticism of baby boomers, uh, but the reality is the tax and transfer system heavily favours them. There was an excellent book by a former British MP, uh, 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 David Willits, called um, The Pinch, which is all about how there's been this shift uh, towards the tax and transfer system going towards older generations. And the same is true here. There was a good report by the Productivity Commission a couple of years ago tax and transfer incidents in Australia 2015. Um, and most older Australians would say, well, that's not true. I'm, uh, I don't draw down that much um, from the taxpayer. But the biggest areas of public expenditure growth are pensions, aged care, um, the pharmaceutical benefits scheme and Medicare. And almost all of that is weighted towards, obviously in pensions and aged care, it's explicit, but Medicare and the pharmaceutical benefits scheme because that's when uh, most people consume most of their health expenses towards the latter stages of their life. So it's about evening out the tax rates broadly between activity, because at the moment we hit income, which hits young people, um, the primary tax older Australians pay uh, is the GST, and addressing those discrepancies to encourage young Australians to buy their own home, uh, to even out the obligation and responsibility across all stages of your life so that we can hold society together. Hmm. And, and I say that because there are very real consequences if we don't, and we've seen this in the UK and the US, where young people are running off towards socialism and taking things off their parents and grandparents. Uh, we saw that with them in supporting Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn. And while they didn't win as candidates, the issues that underline it, and they were all about intergenerational inequity and intergenerational justice, will still be there and find a new champion. And so it's better to do these, uh, have these conversations about how to bring people together and go forward together rather than as a point of division. Yeah, I think the Greeks actually thought they were on a winner with um, their president during Grexit, Cypres, I think his name was, wasn't it? Yeah. He didn't last long. <laughs> and I think the Australian socialist uh, treasurer from the Sydney University the rock star treasurer. He didn't work out all that well as well. But Tim, it's a, it's a really important issue you're taking on. What, what do your colleagues in the party say? Because in a sense, you are challenging them as well, aren't you? That we somehow they have to see that they have to come up with a new offering for a younger generation, lest the younger generation swings more towards the left and, and the Labor Party. 
Well, it's not just they swing to the left to the la uh, le left to Labor. It's actually that they swing to the left of the Labor Party. Yeah, so you'll get more yeah. radical politics, mm. and certainly very bad if you're um, if you want a broadly free market capitalist system that um, encourages reward for effort and all those sort of foundational values that I believe in and many of them believe in. Uh, and so it is challenging them because some of these conversations re required us turning around to our own voters and saying, we need to address some of these issues now, because if we don't, you're actually going to, it's actually going to make it worse for you later. Um, and, uh, and so we need to do that. And so far, I, I think there's been a lot of MPs who are, or, and senators who are at least open and understand some of the challenges. And one of the points I make in the book, and this isn't the point of the book, but it's important to the book, is that if you actually look at people's voting behaviour and life cycle, um, uh, you know, there's always been this tradition if you, know, you're un if you don't vote Labor and you're under 40, you don't have a heart, mm. over 40, you don't vote coalition, you don't have a brain. Mm. Um, but it's now becoming the clearest dividing line in politics. It's not education, it's not wealth, it's not class, it's age. And this is same in the US and the UK. And to put it in perspective, at the 2004 election, and I voted in the 2004 election, as I'm sure you did, it wasn't that long ago, the Liberal Party got nearly 50% of the vote of people under the age of 35. Today it's 23%. That's how stark it's becoming. And as people move along their life cycle, and I said this before, the key thing that shifts their voting sentiment or behaviour or outlook is buying their own home. Home ownership amongst young Australians is going through the floor. So that means they're not making that conversion, which practically means that you are not going to get a generation who are going to switch from being Labor voters, essentially, to Liberal voters. So even if you take out what's good for the country, what's good for uh, keeping society together, and just look at a naked, raw, partisan interest, uh, it would be disastrous if we didn't take these issues seriously. Okay, so I'm sure a lot of people would be very interested to see what your, your dream for the social contract between young and old and how your party can actually eventually sell it. That should be a very interesting reading, Tim. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that's the show for this week. Tim Wilson's fairly controversial, isn't he? He's ultimately trying to get Australians to, younger Australians to look at the Liberal Party as he fears many of our youngsters are becoming progressively more lefty. That's the show for this week. Talk to you next week. Thank you.